I am Plot on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. One of the more engaging and fascinating books of the season is the latest from the distinguished academic and writer J. Edward Chamberlain. Storylines, How Words Shape Our World. It's a reflective book on Mr. Chamberlain's many years as a professor of literature as well as a student of storytelling. His gifts as a storyteller are in full view with his many experiences with uh, varied storytellers that inform or establish the way we see ourselves and each other. I'll get Ted, who uh, joins me now, to tell us about this book, about writing it, and the kinds of storytelling that we're all drawn to as well as challenged by. It's the interesting way that storytelling has this contradiction at its heart, the conflict between what we believe and what is truth that continues to draw us to stories and uh, what essentially keeps us alive. J. Edward Chamberlain is an officer of the Order of Canada and professor emeritus at the University of Toronto. He's uh, worked on sovereignty and land claims in Canada and around the world. Uh, He's the author of several acclaimed titles, including Horse, How the Horse Has Shaped Civilization, and uh, If This Is Your Land, Where Are Your Stories? He first appeared on the program in 2016 when his book The Banker and the Blackfoot was published, This new book is uh, published by Douglas and McIntyre. He joined me from his home in Half Moon Bay, British Columbia last week. Uh, Please welcome back to the Plant Online program, Ted Chamberlain. Mr. Chamberlain, good morning. Good morning. Nice to to hear your voice. Nice to talk to you. Um, In the book, we we see your years of scholarship as well as travels, uh, friendships that that you're reflecting on over the years. Um, at, At the same time as I'm reading it, and I'm enjoying it myself, it seems like it was a lot of fun to write, was it? It was a lot of fun to write. Um, it was hard to find a shape for it that would uh, reflect the subject, but also um, give us give a storyline uh, for folks to follow. And uh, so there was hard work in the editing of it into book form, but it was lots of fun to write the stories. At the heart of storytelling, Ted, is this idea of the conflict between truth and belief. For people listening to us, what is the difference between truth and belief? I mean, is I mean, truth we sort of understand as being factual, etc. Is belief something that we need faith, say? Well, um, the difference is that... Um Truth needs belief to be truth. Okay. Uh, and the relationship between them is always fraught and, and uncertain and sometimes contradictory. Um, and the book takes up those two and several other notions about uncertainty and contradiction and puts them, and puts them at the heart of language and storytelling. Um, the uh, it, it is contradictory that we say the word cat and mean a cat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, when we say the word, the cat comes to mind. Uh, and that and all it is is three letters that we have decided to um, associate with catness. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and there's, there is a sort of a fundamental contradiction in language itself uh, and in uh, the the stories that are taken up by language, and they begin with the stories we um, 
had as, as a child, which almost always began, story time began with Once Upon a Time. And we very quickly, as children, recognized that Once Upon a Time meant right now. Mm. And that kind of contradiction is at the heart of stories and of storytelling, and some uh, storytelling traditions signal it in that kind of way. In Majorca, they have a phrase, uh, which means it was and it was not, and you're into story time. And in southern Africa, where I spent a fair bit of time in the Kalahari, um, the uh, Khoikhoi and Khoisan begin with the word Ngarube, which means the happening that's not happening. Uh, and it both of them move us into a, a, a domain in which we suspend our disbelief or we agree to believe it and not believe it at the same time. Yeah, and that's, that's what compels us to them. Yes, it is. Yes. Uh, and that contradiction, yeah. that's a contradiction we live with all the time. So it's deeply human, uh, and it's caught up in our acceptance of language. Uh, as I mean, Marshall McLuhan once said that... Um, by the meaningless sign linked to the meaningless sound, uh, we have given shape and meaning to the world. Yeah. And what he's doing is talking about the way in which words and images um, are given meaning, significance by us, uh, and through them we give meaning and significance to to the world. And scientists do this in a different way with their languages and mathematics. They turn them into uh, a, a phrase, uh, or a name uh-huh. or a relationship uh, that we we believe um, and that, in a sense, they've been told by their technology. Yeah, you have an interest in mathematics, and, and, and you um, I, I, I actually chuckled when you, you said that you were going to start telling us a, a story about mathematics in, your, in the book. And, and, um, but but there, is, there is storytelling in the scientific, isn't there, and in math. There is indeed, yes. I mean, my, I got into uh, my field, which was literature, teaching literature, which is teaching stories and songs. Literature is a, a fancy sort of highbrow name for stories and songs, but I got into that through mathematics, in fact. My first, um, my first degree at the university was in mathematics, in what they used to call the foundations of mathematics, which was all about storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about numbers, and it was about the ways in which uh, mathematics shapes a whole range of ways in which we understand the world, and it gets translated for us by our really good scientific storytellers. Scientific storytellers are among the best. Uh, they can make us believe almost anything, <laughs> and, and they do it uh, in a convincing way by providing evidence and, uh, uh, and, and telling a good story. And, that's and something, sometimes yeah. someone comes along and says to them, and this is pure storytelling, they say, I've got a better story. Mm. Uh, and so they change their story, and they take up the new story. Yeah. And that's the lovely thing about stories. They they have permanence while we believe them, and then someone will often come along and say, well, i got a better one here. Yeah. Uh, and it's central. That, that sort of claim is central to science, and it's sort of central to, to much of our storytelling. And it should be should be more central than it is to our sense of our history. Indeed. Um, so some people will, will think that there is a conflict between the scientific and, and say, something that might come from religion. Um, but as you write in the book, 
the, the, the underlying current, if you will, is storytelling. And, and then it makes me wonder um, uh, about those of us that rely on storytelling. Um, because a lot of us can be duped by charlatans or, or, or frauds dressed up as compelling storytellers. Um, sometimes we're, we're, we're compelled by stories that we shouldn't believe because we're tr- trying to delude ourselves. Um, in an age, Ted, where we need storytelling more than ever, how, how do we, uh, say, protect ourselves from, from these bad actors who, who, who might use storytelling in a nefarious way? Well, that's, that's, that's in some ways a central question we all have to deal with and always have to deal with. We, and we, uh, I think what we need to do is keep um, belief in close company with its uh, sort of... Uh, close neighbor doubt mm. uh, when with anything that fills us with wonder we've got to wonder about wonder and wondering or belief and doubt uh, our fellow travelers and we've got to keep them as fellow travelers and belief is uh, one of the things that makes belief powerful is that it's always um, shadowed by doubt um, and it, it gives gives us ways of in some ways of transcending the the the, the world we we uh, live in that's an exhausting world and and uh, science gives us ways of understanding that world which we take and um, uh, dismiss at the same time my favorite example is the example with which i open the book uh, where i was at a rastafarian storytelling gathering mm-hmm. that i was invited to by a wonderful man named Mortimer Plano, Ras Kumi, whose name he goes by. He was uh, Bob Marley's spiritual advisor in uh, for much of his early life, uh-huh. uh, and uh, he was he invited me to come and listen to the storytelling reasonings uh, they call the gatherings, the Rastas do. Uh, and uh, just as it was about to start, he uh, uh, came to me and he said, "Brother Ted, uh, something I should tell you." Uh, some of the people here think the world is flat. Uh, some of them think the world is round. And then he just waited a moment while I thought, what the hell is he telling me? Uh, he said, the same people. <laughs> and I realized, of course, that's us. Yeah. We're the same people. Um, and we live with both the, that absolute contradiction uh, and uh, we manage it. Uh, yeah. And words give us ways of managing things. I mean, we manage the fact that the sun is in one place and we circle around it by no. talking about the sunrise and the sunset. Yeah. Because there's something that fills us with wonder. Uh, and we let the wondering look after itself because we know perfectly well that the sun does no such thing, but it brings us joy in the morning and beauty at night. And uh, that'll do. Yeah. And this doubt, I mean, as you said, we need it as well. Yeah. Um, because, and, and that's really what drives us, what keeps us alive. And, and um, that's why it's necessary, isn't it? Yeah. That, no, that, and one of the things I say is doubt keeps, I'm sorry, belief keeps us going, doubt keeps us alive. Mm, yeah. Um, and, and so, I mean, this speaks to, to a point that you make in the book, that just how vital um, storytelling is to life and, and, and how it's connected to survival. It, it is, I think, it, and it, it's often vital in a contradictory way. And here I go to songs, which uh-huh. I try to bring in right 
along with stories, um, uh, as we usually think of them, because story and song belong together. And we, um, we, we, if, if you think of some of the really tough times that people um, experienced, and I, I think in particular of the, the Great Depression in the 30s where there was drought, where there were sandstorms, where people were losing their farms and their lives, mm-hmm. uh, where tuberculosis was... Uh, Endemic um, and and various other diseases and certainly poverty and close to starvation and people were moving from their homes. The songs they listened to were sad songs. They were uh, Jimmy Rogers singing his TB blues or uh, uh, the, uh, a range of other folks. Uh, so lonesome I could cry. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, I, you know. Good night, Irene. Uh, sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, I want to jump in the river and die. The, uh, with Lead Belly singing it, those were the songs that people sang, and that capacity of sad songs to give us hope and joy is extraordinary. Um, and and it's uh, it's contradictory, and it is something that really nourishes us in the same way that hearing I hear some music. Mm-hmm. Beautiful music, and it makes me cry. Yeah, I have no idea why, but it does. And those things, the crying as well as the the, the, the happiness, they nourish our humanity. So I think those we need all sorts of stories. And stories, the other thing that stories do, of course, is give is, is give us company. And mm-hmm. in a world that we're increasingly, in, in many ways, isolated from each other. Uh, that company is really important. Um, it may be the company that says this happened to me, or I know someone this happened to, or um, uh, you know, this will end, but not quite, not quite yet, <laughs> not now. Uh, that's um, that can keep us going. And the other thing that can keep us going uh, is uh, is telling our own story. Yeah. And our, the, the ability to do that, whether it's someone who's in desperate straits alone um, and thinking of suicide, tell the story. Um, that's what the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto has been uh, sort of celebrating is the, the importance of people in trouble telling the story, finding someone to, to tell the story to, which is one of the reasons why these um, emergency lines are, are so important. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, that telling of a story is crucial um, to maintaining some agency in a in a world which, in it, and I mean this in the best of ways, is indifferent to us. I don't mean that people are indifferent to us, but you walk into the woods and you realize um, it doesn't really. It's not. It's not spending its time worrying about you. Mm. We, where we live, we look out to the Salish Sea here. Yeah. And you look out there every day and you think, we're not in charge. And the sea isn't in charge, but it represents a world in which we have to shape our lives uh, in ways that language helps with. And so so do, so do images, of course. I mean, it's no yeah. surprise that images and textiles and things are so important uh, to so many peoples around the world. And the other side of this is, 
we have sadly seen, and many of the people I know have experienced, uh, the terrible results when you take someone's language and stories away, as the residential mm. schools did for so many, many, many indigenous people. Yeah. Have folk songs, uh, as you mentioned, um, in particular, there's some of the earliest ways that a lot of us, I guess, are introduced to storytelling. Gordon Lightfoot died recently. Yeah. Um, I've actually had Chris Christofferson's me and Bobby McGee on repeat on my phone the last couple of weeks. I don't wonder. <laughs> and... No, I mean, that that, that song in particular, yeah. and what you get with Gordy Lightfoot's uh, rendition of it is that rhythm that mm. he brings to that yeah. song. It's the rhythm of, of a road trip. Yeah. Uh, and it's such wonderful. I mean, it's a wonderful song, song and Christopherson and Lightfoot belong in the, you know, up, up in, the, in, in the stars when it comes to storytelling and, yeah. and songwriting. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned um, uh, the residential school experience and, and um, uh, getting that form of storytelling taken away. Um, you mentioned um, the Gitsang First Nation and, um, and Delgamook. Yep. Um, this was a case uh, that went to the Supreme Court where, where uh, oral history really did help establish title. Yes. And, and you were involved in that, were you? I was indirectly involved in that. I've been involved in several other cases that have gone to the court, and the people who brought Delgamuk to trial, the one, the one person who was a tribal the, the chief, the leader of the, uh, the tribal council at the time, Neil Sterrett, mm-hmm. uh, was a, has been a very close friend of mine for 50 years. He died a couple of years ago, and I just came back from celebration of his life up in Hazleton. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, we talked all through the leading up to that trial and the follow-up, uh, and it was interesting uh, in, 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 in a very sad way, because there's lots of sad about that trial. Um, when the, After the trial, the first trial, yeah. uh, when the decision came down, uh, I mean, we knew it was coming in a particular day, um, and I got a call from Neil that morning, very early, about 7 o'clock, uh, and uh, he called, and I said, Neil, I'm so sorry. I'd heard the results, mm-hmm. of course, the night before. And uh, I, I said, uh, I'm sorry it went against you. He said, oh, well, and I knew this. He said, we expected it, and we'll appeal, and we'll win. But he said, the thing I wanted to call you about, I'm so upset uh, about it, um, and it's the thing that's upset me and a number of the elders, is one of the things that the judge, Alan McKechn, said in the judgment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he referred to two of the elders who'd given evidence who were um, very much spiritual leaders in the community, and they were talking about the long-standing, deeply spiritual relationship with the salmon um, that they um, uh, fed on for, yeah. for for generations. Uh, and they were described by the judge as two old men who like fishing. Mm. These were their spiritual leaders. I mean, Neil was just outraged and distraught by that um, because it was for him and for them such an insult they got back at him at the judge at the end of the day and one of the ways they got back was the supreme court saying unequivocally that the the trial courts had to take seriously the oral traditions of indigenous people as seriously as they would take documents Mm. Um, and uh, they didn't tell them how to do that 
and that's one of the things that needs more opening out is is how to understand how to listen to some traditions historical traditions which they those are um, which are of a different sort than the ones we're used to so we've got some ways to go we've got some ways to go around you know all, all around on that one but uh, so, so, Ted, as somebody who who studied storytelling, you know their their entire career, how do we get around that? How how do we get to to to, to where this landmark case is more than just a case, say, and and it becomes um, a way for us to to not only talk to one another but listen to one another in 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 a society. Well, I think one of the ways we do is kind of an old fashioned way. We get um, care, cautiously. Uh-huh. Um, and not in an imperial way, uh, to get to know uh, the people whose land, whose territory we're living on. Um, and that isn't going to happen quickly. Uh, it'll probably happen most successfully with young people uh-huh. who seem ready to do so. Uh, so you get connections of that sort, and with that, understandings um, that are... It's kind of go beyond the schoolhouse uh, of the people and the relationships, uh, and those are nation-specific, as they are with all of our nations. And one of the things that we need to recognize is that when we call them First Nations, we're talking in, in we're talking international relations, and um, these nations are not only in many ways. Different from from the ways in which we think of ourselves, and mm-hmm. they will will see themselves as chosen by the, their Creator to live where they live. We think of ourselves as choosing to live here. That's just one element. But the languages, of course, are another. But the other thing that's important is not to homogenize them and say that there's there is indigenous storytelling. Mm-hmm. There's Cree storytelling. There's Coast Salish storytelling, there's Clinkett storytelling, there's Simpson storytelling, there's Gixan storytelling, and they're all significantly different and and unique. There are common elements, but they have their own character, their own way of um, of dealing with relationships, historical relationships, and we need to recognize that, and the best way of doing that is to find ways of... Working, of course, working towards reconciliation, but simply of, of getting to know uh, some of the people. And yeah. I think young people are the ones where that can best happen because they don't bring uh, a, a load of preconceptions. Yeah. Um, they just uh, they, they, they like they like people, and they don't like some people. Sure, I mean that that happens. Um, but they, uh, I think that's our way through, and it's. It's a longer-term way, but it's a way that many schools seem to be nourishing. Yeah, I know. Um, I have a daughter who teaches in Vancouver, and this school—it's um, in East Vancouver, along Commercial Drive—and they—they uh, uh, have—they're developing close relations, but not overwhelming relations with uh, some of the indigenous schooling that's going on near them. Uh, but it's—it's it's that balance. This isn't an imperial exercise. This is a an exercise, and it's not an exercise that should be dominated by what we all feel, which is deeply ashamed at what has happened. 
but uh, exercise is part of being human and making friends or making acquaintances first. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, and listening. Yeah. We've got to learn. We, you know, we spend so much time thinking about teaching kids and teaching ourselves to read. Uh, we don't spend much time teaching people how to listen. <laughs> Boy, ain't that the truth? Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I want to ask you about technology because because uh, technology over the years um, affects storytelling. Um, you, you tell a marvelous story about uh, this university. I think it's in Prague, um, where the enrollment at one point was five times what it was until the printing press. That's right. And I'm from twenty five thousand yeah. to five thousand. Yeah, well, once the book came in, we, we people could then learn distant, you know, uh, yep. do do learning uh, uh, distance learning. Um, what what about technology over the years? I mean, technology seems to be uh, developing at a rapid pace. Uh, storytelling will survive, won't it? Well, oh, I think it will survive. It may have some differences, um, you know, some changes. I mean, one of the things that I often sort of think about is when books came along. One of the early promoters of books and the books he was talking about initially were scribe, written by scribes, and then printing was just coming on scene. But he said one of the wonderful things about books is if you're ignorant, they can't laugh at you. <laughs> and yeah. that was that's a big advantage. It's an advantage we all know, um, and and it, it, it we don't think about all that much. But I think we will find there are advantages to the technology that's coming along. And I must say, I'm, I'm not at the forefront by any means of technology, but things like Zoom, uh-huh. are, 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 uh, I'm surprised at how much I am enjoying um, um. Zoom calls with friends and things like that and, and how much uh, we're able to talk about things, seeing each other, but not traveling as we do in in North America, have to in North America, often yeah. hundreds or thousands of miles to see old friends. Um, we're keeping in touch in ways, and I think some of this technology is is going to help us in all sorts of ways. Some of it's going to be disruptive, no uh-huh. question. Um, it's uh, and we haven't, I mean, we haven't seen the start of it yet. Uh, really, we're, it, it's moving in all sorts of ways. Artificial intelligence yeah. is another um, thing that. Uh, Folks, uh, really, are, are, are you know? I think we'll find some things that change, but uh, we're pretty good at change, humans. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We should be able to manage it. Yeah, there's a a, a, a beautiful part in the book um, where you talk about going to Saskatoon and, and hearing uh, somebody named Eduardo Duran speak, and yeah. um, he's somebody who's, who's suffered various illnesses, and. Um, he has this phrase that um, I've been thinking about since I finished the book that that, that um, I just love, and and yet I'm, I'm wondering what it what it means even uh, the, the wisdom of it, and and that's he talked he talked about the sacredness of suffering. Um, it's an incredibly um, wise phrase, and I'm wondering um, when you heard that because it obviously affected you as you write in the book. Yeah. Um, what what have you learned about it? And 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 I mean, I can't help but think that it changes people's lives when they when they real when they when they think about a phrase like that. Well, it it um, it does, and it. it uh, I was in an audience that was had brought, been brought together by Marie Baptiste, a very fine Mi'kmaq uh-huh. um, uh, 
historian and, and, and writer and leader, um, elder. She, uh, it, uh, and she brought together people, many of whom in that Saskatoon audience were had clearly had been damaged um, um, by an upbringing that was shaped by residential schools and uh, and by some of the consequences of that in their families and in their communities. Uh, and uh, they were in, in, not in good shape. And he talked about working with a Navajo in a, uh, a group that were trying to find ways of dealing with what was a very similar situation uh, for many of the people. They were not well. They mm-hmm. were um, at a level of substance abuse and various other kinds of abuse, social and medical, uh, were high. Um, and they, uh, they, were not, they were not in good shape. Uh, and meant for many of them, um, they might not have all that much longer to live, and it, they might. The idea of getting better uh, was a, a dream. I hoped they would realize it, but he was trying to figure out ways of bringing, giving them some sense of hope and uh, and, and, and sort of uh, dignity. Uh, and he started to think about the things, that, about things spiritual, which are very important to indigenous people, but whether we realize it or talk about it this way or not, are very important to all of us. Uh, and I don't mean that in, in institutional terms. Mm-hmm. I just mean in the sense that there are powers out there and we talk about the environment in ways that certainly often are spiritual. Uh, and he thought about Christianity and the Sundance, which were um, the key elements for many of them of institutional religion, uh, and Christianity had done some real damage. Mm. Uh, but it, but yeah. many of them, it had also given many of them a sense of a community that they'd grown up in, even though it was a community that had damaged them. Uh, and the Sundance, which was still and still is very important to the communities, uh, and both of which, the original Sundance, the Sundance right through until the early part of the. 20th century um, involved um, mutilation, self-mutilation by the the warriors. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, but the ones who chose or were chosen uh, to do the dance. And uh, and then, of course, there's Christianity with crucifixion. And he thought, well, let's just think about and talk about how suffering becomes sacred in those important religions and how it can be important to each of us and each of the people there um, in thinking about what they're going through. Mm. The suffering isn't going to stop for many of them, um, but if they can see it as in some way with part of a ancient, sacred uh, experience that humans often go through um, in, in one way or another, not nearly... Um, as, as, as severely as many of them had gone through it, it would give them some dignity. And he said, and I watched it mm-hmm. in that, that afternoon in the audience, it, it really took hold of many of the people there. You could see it in their, in their faces, in the way they were talking to each other, mm-hmm. or to, in some cases to me, the way they were walking out of the hall uh, with a sense that there was something that they were still somebody. There was still dignity um, and, and a kind of uh, purpose 
yeah. uh, to to the lives they were living, and the phrase, and I know you know in some ways it it, it has the elements of it have have similarities to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, but this wasn't wasn't that, uh, and I, I certainly don't disrespect AA. It does it helps a lot of people, but this was something different with a phrase that I've never forgotten. Yeah, yeah. It's one. It's a. It's one of the memorable stories in in, in this book that, that that's full of stories, um, that uh, I, I can't help but think that people will read and, and find something that they need, um, something that they'll find useful. Um, it, it's a very fine book, uh, Ted. Congratulations and good luck with it. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed this greatly, and and, and thank you for the opportunity. The book is called Storylines, How Words Shape Our World. It's uh, from uh, Douglas and McIntyre. It's author Ted Chamberlain. Join me on the line from Half Moon Bay, British Columbia in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plunton.